0: If you're able, let's stand out of reverence for the Word of God. Today's sermon text is from 2nd Peter, 2nd Epistle of Peter. And we're going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 15. Simon Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and un- or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to At any time, recall these things. This is the word of God. May his name be praised. May he add his blessing to our hearing. You may be seated. And let's pray. Merciful Lord, we thank you, O God, that you have granted to us Through the divine power of Jesus, your Son, all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. Lord, we thank you that you have granted us precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. Lord, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Lord, we ask that you may please speak again to our hearts today. Lord, renew in our own hearts by the word of God, Lord, those precious and very great promises that your people may be strengthened. Lord, that we may be enabled by your help to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, for the building up of your church and for the praise of your name. Help me, O God. Use me as a mouthpiece for your word. Strengthen me in your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, uh, the sermon has a title, Grow in Grace. And then the subtitle for the sermon is, What, How, and Why? And as I mentioned to the children The point that we will be seeing today in the text that we're looking at is growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the words for this sermon come from the last verse of the the epistle. And if you look at the last verse, chapter 3, verse 18, it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And it might be kind of weird for us when we're looking at the first part to begin by looking at the last part, but this last verse here expresses what is the overarching theme of this whole epistle, and that is growing in grace. And before we jump into the exposition of this epistle, I think it might be helpful for us to establish a bit of background so that we can understand where Peter is coming from, where his uh, recipients are coming from, and where we should come from as we're aiming to understand this text. So let's go back to chapter one and let's look beginning at verse one. First, who's the author of this little letter? Verse one says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So there we have the identity and the description of the author. And it, I, the author identifies himself as Simon Peter and then he describes himself in two ways. One really, really low way, in one really high and exalted way. On one hand, he calls himself literally a slave of Jesus Christ, uh, expressing the lowliness of Peter's position. He did not even own his own life, but he is a servant to the master. And then in the same breath, he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, expressing the, the loftiness and the authority of his position. You know, there's uh, only 12 who can call themselves apostles, true apostles of Jesus Christ. And of these, Peter was the foremost. He was chosen by Christ and given authority by Christ to establish and build up the church, which is built on the foundation of the apostles with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. And actually, there were you should probably say there were 13 because Apostle Paul says that he was an apostle one abnormally born. But nonetheless, Peter is a foremost among the apostles. And he was a leader even while uh, Jesus was on the earth. Um, Peter was the the spokesperson. He would often ask the questions that all the other disciples wanted to ask. He would say things um, that revealed the, the revelation of God given to him to proclaim Jesus as the Christ, for example. And then sometimes he would say things that, that, that represent his own weakness and self-reliance. But nonetheless, Peter is a foremost apostle and, and he is given a very preeminent position in the description of the early church. If we go back to Acts chapter one, chapter one to twelve, look at the, the, the prominence that Peter had in Acts chapter one. He is the one who uh, replaces um, Judas in, in Acts chapter one. He is the one that preaches on the day of Pentecost and, and thousands are brought into faith. He is the one that God uses to open up the door to the Samaritans in, in Acts chapter eight and then to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. All but one of the sermons in Acts verse chapters one to twelve are by Peter. The only sermon that's not by Peter is the address Stephen gives before the Sanhedrin. All the other sermons that are that are recorded for us were given by Peter. Similarly, all the miracles that are actually recorded in Acts 1 to 12 are by Peter. Peter is a, a very prominent role by Jesus in establishing the early church. Nonetheless, after Acts chapter 12, we, we hear very little about Peter and his ongoing ministry. We do know that he traveled eventually uh, beyond Jerusalem and, and uh, went to churches in Asia Minor and then eventually arrived in Rome, where he eventually was martyred. And that brings us now to this setting, the, the historical context of, the ver- of, of 2 Peter And 1st and 2nd Peter likely were written by Peter when he was in Rome, probably in the final years of his life and within the time frame of AD 64 to 67, in that range. The backdrop of the epistle is Roman persecution against the Christians, which was instigated by the Emperor Nero in AD 64 and continued all the way to AD 68 and even beyond that. And so that's how we get this time frame for the epistle, and the persecution was not only happening in Rome, but it had spread beyond Rome out, uh, throughout the Roman Empire, including Christians in Pontius and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, and those are the churches that Paul, uh, uh, Peter, addresses directly uh, in First Peter, and we know also that he's addressing Second Peter to those churches as well, because in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says that this is the second letter that I'm writing to you. So we know that he's writing to the same group of churches who were experiencing intense persecution. And 1 Peter has its theme mainly suffering for righteousness' sake, whereas 2 Peter has a somewhat different emphasis. And 2 Peter, Peter addresses more not external things, but internal things, internal to the church, especially emphasizing and warning against false teaching, uh, emphasizing, emphasizing the need for Christians to grow in grace, reminding them of, of the foundation of faith in the scripture. We have in Second Peter one of the most beautiful um, explanations of the inspiration of scripture in the end of chapter 1. And then we have at the end of chapter 3 a reminder that our heavenly home, is awaiting for us, and even though God may seem to delay and delay and delay, but his patience is for repentance, that sinners might be saved, and we should live. Uh, how should we live as we wait for the coming kingdom of God? So all of this is, is addressing mainly um, threats inside the church Well, First Peter was addressing things outside the church. Now, 2,000 years later, we find ourselves very similar setting as when Peter wrote the letter. Think about the situation that we have now. For the past few hundred years, especially in the West, the winds of the culture were blowing at our backs. But now it seems the wind is more blowing in our faces. As in Peter's time, our society is growing cold, ambivalent at best, and and hostile sometimes towards the followers of Jesus. Liberties and, and privileges that we enjoyed for a long time, maybe even took for granted in this country, are being eroded. Even in this very city, advocates for immorality are picketing churches and, and sometimes doing graffiti and other things. And this is to say nothing about the brothers and sisters in places like Eritrea and Nigeria and Afghanistan who are facing imprisonment and torture and even death for Christ. And just like in Peter's time, where he was warning of false teachers, false teaching is rampant in the church now. So we see that 2,000 years have passed. but There's nothing new under the sun. Our context, our, our setting, even in Providence Baptist Church, is very relevant to the setting that Peter is addressing in this epistle. The encouragement that he is giving to the Christians there is the encouragement that God has for us now. The Word of God is living and active. It, it, it is speaking to us and addressing us right where we are. Now, who are the recipients of 2 Peter? We we talked about that briefly, and they're not named in this text, although we do know that it's the same people as 1 Peter, because chapter 3 says that this is the second letter I'm writing to you. But he does describe them. And let's look at verse 1, the second part. It says to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter doesn't name them, but he describes them as having obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, and, and meaning with the apostles. And this is really an astounding description can you can you imagine how those beleaguered Christians must have felt? Right, somewhere in Asia Minor, cloistered away, trying to escape the persecution that they have. Um, some of the apostles already have died, and and Peter himself is expecting imminently to die, facing his own execution. And then here he comes. He's he's the one who spent three whole years with Jesus, witnessed the risen Christ. Uh, authorized as a foremost apostle in the establishment of the church. And, and then he says that you have obtained a faith of equal standing as my own. That must have blown their minds. How can this be? And then Peter answers the question in the end of verse one. It says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul says, Peter says that all Christians alike share in salvation because our standing is not because of the the quality of faith that we have in in and of ourselves, but because the righteousness of Christ has been given to the Christian. Just as God had granted Peter saving faith and, and Christ had clothed Peter in the righteousness of Christ. So God had granted these Christians, and even to us, the same saving faith. So I imagine this must have been a tremendous encouragement to the first century Christians, to know that there is no distinction in faith among believers, that the youngest baby Christian to the most mature apostle, that each one has obtained the same priceless saving faith as a gift of the grace of God. And, and, and this is an encouragement to us as well. There are no second-class Christians. Every Christian has equal access to God through the Lord Jesus. Each Christian has an equal interest in the saving work of Christ. Both have received the same glorious salvation through Christ, accepting and receiving and resting upon Christ alone for justification and sanctification and eternal life. So we we have many Christians in this room. We're all very different. Some of us have been in the Lord many decades. Others, less than a year. We have different backgrounds. We have different abilities. We have different vulnerabilities to sin. We have different maturity. We have different giftedness. And yet, we all possess a faith of equal standing as the Apostles. And I think it's very helpful to remember here how this can be. This can be because faith has as its strength, not faith itself, but the object of that faith. Faith unites the weak believer to Christ as it does the strong. Faith purifies and justifies the one who is strong as well as the one who is weak because wherever it exists, saving faith, true faith... Faith that is gifted by God grabs hold of the same precious Savior and applies to oneself the same precious promises. And an important implication of this, if we're going to take this and then apply it to ourselves, is that our faith does not rest in ourselves. It's not something that I can conjure up. It's not something that I can, I can um, add to by my own efforts. It's also not something I can take credit for. Because the the scripture says, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, that faith is a gift of God's grace so that no one can boast. Another implication is that, now listen, there's a difference between the reality of saving faith and the apprehension of that divine reality in our own soul. The divine reality is this. If Christ has saved you, you are saved once and for all, and you have a faith of equal standing as that of Apostle Peter or Apostle Paul or John the Baptist or any other great Christian uh, throughout history. And this is by the grace of God. Your sins have been washed clean. You've been granted the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's the divine reality. But even still, sometimes our apprehension of that divine reality, our, our, our self application or, or knowing this divine reality can grow strong or can grow weak. Our personal interest in the saving merits of Christ, our assurance that our sins are forgiven, our knowledge that Christ died for me, that, that an apprehension of faith can grow or shrink. And so, um, nevertheless, the, the scripture says that saving faith, though it may be weak or strong, comes from the spirit of God. And therefore, though it may be assailed and weakened, the promises of God are sure because they are secured by the very blood of God's son. And in the genuine believer, saving faith will grow up to the attainment of full assurance in Christ. Because Jesus himself is the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Okay, so that's the address that Peter gives to the recipients. Now let's look at a benediction that he gives them in verse 2. Verse 2 says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And, And this sounds like a pretty common greeting when we look at Peter's... Letter in First Peter, he says the same, may peace and grace be multiplied to you. Apostle Paul uses a very similar way, grace and peace in Christ Jesus. Do you remember when we used to, uh, at the very beginning of the service, we would go around and shake each other's hands, and some of you are here for that time, I think. And rather than just beginning, we would uh, uh, all gather together and we would... Um, shake each other's hands and go around and greet one another. And my practice was not to say good morning, but to say grace and peace to you in the Lord Jesus or something like that. Why? Why why is that a common greeting in the the New Testament? It's not just an idle hello. It's, It's not just that's how they said hello. It's because the grace and peace is connected logically to the, the saving faith that Peter introduced in, in verse 1. that The faith in verse 1 produces the multiplication of grace and peace in verse 2. So there's a link. Grace and peace are the fruits of righteousness, the, the, the Scripture says. We look at Romans chapter 5. It talks about because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have hope, and we have all of these fruits of, of faith. And then um, this blessing to grow in peace and to grow in grace is also linked logically to what Paul is, uh, Peter is going to say in the next section in verses 3 to 11. But before we go there, before we jump into the main argument, I want to also think about what is Peter's overarching purpose? I kind of mentioned it already at the introduction, but let's look at what Peter himself says is his purpose. And let's jump ahead to verse 12 So here we see that Peter is aiming to establish them and to remind them of the truth. Even though they knew it already, he wanted to remind them. At the time of writing, Peter is likely in prison. He is, uh, knows that his execution is imminent. He knows that his mortal life soon will be finished, verse 14. And so he wants to make every effort. While he has time, while the Lord Jesus grants him time, that he will prepare the churches for trials and for false teachings and for the sorrows that they will face soon. So then, in in chapter three, he says that I want to stir you up, stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And then finally, verse chapter three, verse eighteen, as I mentioned, he summarizes the whole point. What does Paul want? He is about to die. What does he want for these churches? He wants them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his purpose in this epistle uh, mainly is to remind the churches of the need for them to grow in grace, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Soon he will leave. False teachers will come. They will be subjected to hardships as they await the appearing of the Lord. How can they stand firm? How can we stand firm? Peter's answer seems very simple. Grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that brings us now to the main argument that Peter lays out for us in chapter 1, verse 3 to 11, where he points in detail what does it mean to grow in grace? How do we grow in grace? Why should we grow in grace? In the very first part, verses 3 and 4, he explains what it means that God has given us grace. He he enumerates for us the graces that God has given us. And then in verses 5 to 7, he talks about what growing in grace looks like. It it looks like growth in Christian character. And then finally, in verses 8 to 11, he gives us two warnings. What will happen if we don't grow in grace? And two encouragements, promises of blessing for those who do grow in grace. So that, that's kind of the, the frame of the text. Uh, we're going to look at three parts, growing in grace. First, what, and then how, and then why. Let's begin with number one, what. So what is the grace that Christians have received? This is verses three and four. So Paul, Peter begins his main argument, again, to remind the believers of the blessings and the graces that they have received in him. If we are to grow in the grace of Jesus, we have to remember what grace has Christ given to us. So then he enumerates uh, them, and and you can count them. There are about six. I'm going to go through each one. But let's look at verse 3. His divine power has granted us to, to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Look at the first part. It says, "His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness." So the first thing that Peter identifies as the grace that we've received from God is divine power. And the question we should ask is: It says His divine power. So whose divine power is that? The first, uh, so it, before verse three, the the latest antecedent is Jesus, our Lord. So Peter is addressing Jesus. It's Jesus' power. It's Jesus's power that has granted to us all things. So how does the scripture describe for us Jesus's power? Hebrews 1 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Regarding his incarnation, Luke chapter 1 says that he was conceived by the power of the Most High, in his ministry, Luke 4 says that he ministered and lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says that he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And Matthew 24 says that he will return on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Christ's power is what Peter has in view. And he says that his power, the power of Christ, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Christ is the source of the believer's sufficiency. Christ has empowered us. Think about the ways that Christ has empowered the Christian. He has empowered us to believe upon him for salvation. His, his power is sustaining us to the saving of our souls. His power is at work in us to will and to work according to the purposes of God. Christ's power has given us everything that we need to please God. There's nothing lacking. Dear Christian, you lack nothing to grow in the the knowledge of God and and to serve God in your life. Sometimes we we think that we need something. We're looking for a a, a religious system or we're looking for a psychological technique or we're looking for something. But what uh, What Peter is saying here is that Christ is all we need. That Christ has, by his divine power, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Even our weaknesses are opportunities to display the power of Christ. For Jesus said, My power is made perfect in weakness. Isn't this glorious? In Christ, we have every resource the fountain of all spiritual blessings is the divine power of Jesus. It is from him that we receive everything necessary for preserving and improving and perfecting the grace and the peace of God. This is uh, the first grace that we have received, divine empowerment as an overwhelming supply of all that we need for a life that is honoring to God and pleasing to God and, and uh, glorifying to God. Christ has furnished us with everything. In the midst of our sins, even. In the midst of the trials of life. In an unknown future. Facing losses of freedom. Hardening of our society. Facing our own weaknesses. Even facing our own death. Christ's divine power has granted us everything that we need to glorify Him. So, it's not a question of a new psychological system or, or, or a new kind of framework. Or, or It's a question of being united to Christ, being united to the power of Christ by faith, and drawing deeply upon him. Let's keep on going. Peter mentions first divine empowerment for life and godliness. And then to that he adds that we have received divine knowledge. That is to say, we know we have the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, verse 3. So then the question comes, okay, if Christ's power has granted us all things, how do we tap into that power for godly living? And the the answer Peter gives is through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence. Peter is saying that the knowledge of God is, is this divine channel, whereby all spiritual supports and comforts are conveyed to the believer. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have seen. Excuse me, whom you have sent. This is a divine knowledge. It's not talking about a set of facts. It's not talking about, I have a theology, a very, very clear and, and robust theology of who God is, and I can tell you all his attributes, and I can, I can enumerate to you all of these different uh, these ideas about the, the nature of the divine. Those, those things are important for sure, But but what Peter is referring to here is that we are given the true knowledge of God, intimate and personal fellowship and relationship with the Holy One. And this comes to us because of the mercy of God. On our own, we cannot know God because of the depravity of our own hearts. All all the false religions of the world testify the futility of fallen man coming to a knowledge of God on his own. We need God to reveal himself to us. We need God to give us true knowledge of himself and that is what he has done in his word and also in the word, especially in the word, become flesh, the Lord Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 says, For God who said, let light shine in darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Has God opened up your spiritual eyes to behold Christ in faith? Has God given you the knowledge of the gospel? Has God granted you faith to believe in him? If he has, the result is that we have fellowship with God in his word. The Holy Spirit lives within us. There is no greater thing than to know God, to know the creator. I think it's uh, A.W. Tozer said, or maybe it was somebody else, somebody said, The most important thing about a person is what they think, what comes into their mind when they think about God. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Do you have the knowledge of the one who called us to his own glory and excellence through Jesus Christ, who is himself the revelation of God? If you do... It is because of the mercy and grace that God has given to us through his son. And that grace is not the only thing, but it continues. Let's look at the end of verse three. Who called us to his own glory and excellence. So uh, um, again, if we're looking at the numbers, first, divine empowerment. Next, divine knowledge. And now third, the effectual call that God has called us to himself. Our our knowledge of God is is holy because God has effectually and, and mercifully called each of us to himself, each of his children. The effectual call is the call of God, whereby God has called those, he predestines unto life by his word and spirit, out of their natural state of sin and death and into the blessed state of grace. And salvation through the application of the gospel to their hearts. God's effectual call is, uh, the scripture says here, to his own glory and excellence. That, that is God calls people to himself. God enlightens our minds. He gives us savingly the the knowledge of the things of God. He takes away our heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh. He gives us a new will. He draws us to Christ. He opens our eyes to see our sin, the reality of our judgment before a holy God, and, and the glory of Christ that He has paid for our sin on the cross and that he has given us the righteousness of God, and then we hunger and thirst after that righteousness. And then God, uh, by his effectual call, enables us to understand the message of salvation by the quickening and the renewing of the spirit of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Where would we be if it not God had effectually called us to himself? What would your life be like? Is it not the great grace and mercy of God that he has powerfully and personally applied the saving merits of Christ to your own soul? That he has awakened you to your depravity apart from him? That he has opened your eyes to the path of destruction that you followed apart from the Lord Jesus? And and all of this is for the glory of God. It says, who calls us to his own glory and excellence. It is the glory of God to convert sinners, to call us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that we might declare his praises and put on display his glory and his virtue and his mercy and his grace to us in Christ Jesus. And then Peter continues. It's like a cascade of waterfall of grace in verse 4. It says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so divine empowerment divine knowledge effectual calling and to this god has also given us precious and very great promises and these are the promises of the gospel that whoever believes in the lord jesus christ will be saved that if we confess our sins that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness that whoever believes in the lord jesus will not perish but have eternal life that all things work together for the good of God's people, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God's own son, that we have a promised heavenly reward, that we have been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade away, kept in heaven for you. And we could, we could talk more, much, much more, about the precious and great promises of God and, and and not only has God given us these promises, but he's also guaranteed them by giving us his Holy Spirit who comes and dwells in us and enlivens us and empowers us and sanctifies us so that we can believe in the promises and live them out in our life. Now, what do these promises accomplish? Look at verse 4, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, we have received divine empowerment and divine knowledge and effectual calling and these precious and very great promises what for to what result it says that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature that doesn't mean that that we become like divine ourselves that we have you know the spark of god in us or that we have you know we we become like little god no that's not what it's saying It's saying that we are given a new nature. The nature that we inherited from Adam, one that is natural, one that is fleshly, one that is sinful, to the Christian, that nature is buried with Christ. It says in the gospel, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That we have a new nature, we have been born anew, born of God. We share in the nature of God because we possess the gift of eternal life from God, that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, that the old has gone and the new has come. We are born again, able to enjoy fellowship with God and communion with God as his spirit lives in us. You know, we, we, we struggle in our life and, and so much of the struggle is, is because of the residual man of flesh. The, the 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 residual of adam's nature that we still live in and yet our our life as a christian is 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 also altered because we have been given a new nature and we have a new birth and we have precious promises and even this old body of flesh that we we still battle against eventually will be put off that we will receive a a new and and resurrection body. The scripture says we will be made like our Savior and receive a new body in the new heavens and in the new earth. So again, remember, this is what Peter is aiming for us to see, just this overwhelming multiplication of grace, all the varied kinds of graces that we have received. And and he adds on one more at the end of verse 4 having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So to add in from divine empowerment, divine knowledge, the effectual calling of God, the precious promises of God, a new nature created in Christ Jesus. Now Peter adds that we have been delivered from the corruption of sin. The the scripture says the world and its desires are passing away. Once we were slaved, to the world's lusts through our flesh. It says in scripture, like the rest, like the rest, we were objects of wrath. And, and the problem's not that the, the world was corrupt, and so the world was corrupting us. We were okay. It's just the world was not good. No, no. It says that we contributed to the corruption of the world because of our sinful desire. And yet the God has delivered us from this corruption. He has placed our sins on his son. He punished his son in our place, crucifying him on the cross and then raising him again on the third day. Romans chapter six, verse six says that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In Christ, God has made a way of escape. It says, escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's like the pilgrim's progress. Do you remember what happened to uh, to, to Christian, the pilgrim? That that he had uh, a sense of God's judgment upon his city, the city of destruction. And then he was pointed the way and he went... Through all these various trials, and eventually was delivered into the heavenly kingdom of God, having tasted all the faithfulness of God throughout his journey, which represents the Christian's life of faith. So, too, we have been delivered out of the city of destruction and placed on the path of eternal life. So, this is the conclusion of the graces that Christians have received. And, my brothers and sisters, Aren't these graces marvelous? How great is the love the Father has for us, that we should be the children of God, and that is what we are. Oh, that we may not be hardened or calloused or cold to all the mercy that we have received from the the grace of God. May we remember the manifold blessings that God has given to us through his Son, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So Paul is is addressing our hearts and, and the hearts of his readers to, to, to glory in and to really remember the grace that we have received from God. That is, uh, always must be present for growing in grace. Let us never lose sight of what God has done for us. It's, it's as essential to the Christian as the analogy I gave with the plants. All of the things that, that the scripture tells us to do that we're going to look at next. If there is no grace from God, if we are not empowered by the Holy Spirit, if we are not enabled by God's power through His calling, if we're not given the promises of God, if we don't have divine and personal knowledge of God through His Son, if our sins have not been washed clean, if these things are not a reality. It's like pouring water and and sunshine on a plastic plant. There is no growth because there is no life. But we have life. We have life in His Son. Praise God. And so to this, Peter now begins in, chapter, uh, in verse 5 to talk about the how of spiritual growth. He, he, he gave the what in verse 3 and 4, and now it's the how. So in response, what, what should the Christian do? And now Peter shifts his argument of responding to the grace of God. And, and notice verse 5, this is the first time that there's any command given, right? Everything else was about what God has done. He did this. He has given us divine power. He has enabled us. He has called us. He has rescued us. All of what God has done. And and now verse five, a shift. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. It, 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 you know, when I uh, read this, these verses, it reminds me of a ladder. The ladder is getting bigger and taller and taller, getting higher and higher. Each one builds on the previous one. And, and, then, and then they culminate in this beautiful uh, description of what Christian growth looks like. And if you want to use a word for that, it's sanctification. And if you want to use a few more words, it's our character becoming like Jesus. So Paul Peter is saying here that everything that God has done for us, right? The divine power that we have for all of life and godliness, the knowledge of God, the calling of God, the promises of God, the new nature, the escape from sin, all of these things are the motivation and also the empowerment for us now to grow in character, to grow in sanctification. And another important thing to notice in verse 5 is that it says, make every effort, make every effort, The gifts of God in in verses three and four, those were done monergistically, one-sidedly. But growth in grace is, uh, you know, a big word, synergistically. Us and God working together, requiring effort by the Christian. It's not let go and let God. It is rather we make every effort to grow in grace because of what Christ has done in me and for me and what he is doing through me by his Holy Spirit. Knowing that it is God who is at work to will at work in me to will and to work according to His good pleasure. So this is motivated by the mercy that we have received, and it's empowered by the power of God at work in us. So now let's examine these little uh, uh, the, uh, the, this list uh, of growth as a Christian, and I'm going to try to go a little bit more quick. Firstly, supplement your faith with virtue, and it's helpful to know here that the word virtue is the same word that's translated excellence in verse 3. So there it's talking about God's excellence, and here it's talking about our virtue. But the word means moral goodness that's demonstrated in the deeds of life. So the faith that we have received is a faith by grace, not by works. But Peter is saying that the living faith is manifested in works. It's manifested in good works. So, Peter is saying that as a Christian, we make every effort to supplement the invisible faith that we have received as a gift from God by His grace with visible works that give testimony to the reality of saving faith at work in our hearts. Next, it says, and virtue with knowledge. So, without knowledge, Uh, uh, we don't know what to do to please God. We don't know what deeds are pleasing to God. So knowledge is very important. Knowledge means not just a comprehension of facts and not a theological construct or a system that remains in our minds but, but doesn't impact our walk. No, knowledge means truth properly comprehended and then applied. And where do we get this kind of knowledge? Knowledge that changes the very way that we live. And the answer is the scripture, the scripture which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. So would you know what work the Lord delights in? Would you know what deeds bring him glory? Would you excel in the service that honors him? Then my brother and my sister diligently study the scriptures wherein you will find how to walk with God and how to serve him and how to serve his people. Next, it says, add to knowledge self-control. As we grow in grace, every Christian knows that we have an enemy close at hand who often assaults and discourages us from serving God. And it's a very difficult enemy to get rid of because that enemy is our own self self wants to be supreme it wants its own desires and its own appetites to be satisfied it wants to promote its own agenda not god's and therefore peter is saying to grow in grace we need to conquer this enemy of self we need to master our own flesh our passions and our desires rather than being mastered by them Um, My wife often says, as she's counseling ladies, she often says a little rhyme. There are two options on the shelf. Live for God or live for self. So Peter is saying here that virtue, guided by knowledge, disciplines desire and makes it the servant, not the master of life. The master is the Lord Jesus. And then fourthly, Peter says, to self-control, add steadfastness. And I can tell you one thing, growing in grace is not easy. It's not easy to control self. What's the number one thing you want to do when you're trying to control the self? And that is to stop. You want to <clears throat> you want to give up. <clears throat> and so Peter reminds us of the importance of steadfastness. And that means patiently doing what is right. Never giving up, never giving in. But growing in grace requires that kind of endurance. And I think especially now, in this season of the church, uh, of Providence Baptist Church, I feel that this season especially, uh, demands additional endurance. The, the past two years, don't you agree? It feels like one wave after another, after another has blown over this people. If it's not the, the, the circumstances, then it's health. If it's not health, it's Conflict. If it's not conflict, it's our own sin. This is a hard time. What do we do? I think, I mean, I can speak for myself, I'm tired. Um, Sometimes tempted to be discouraged. The Lord Jesus here, Apostle Peter, is encouraging us to remain steadfast to endure to the end in that which honors God, to keep on worshiping Christ, keep on serving his people, keep on loving one another, keep on forgiving one another, keep on letting go of grudges that we may so easily pick up against those who we feel have wronged us. Keep on praying for the Lord to do his good and perfect will in this church and and in my heart and in my family and in those who I love and in those for whom I'm praying that Christ may save. May God help us to endure, to remain steadfast for his glory. And this is through the strength that he provides. And and then the next part, what Peter adds, to steadfast add godliness. And I think... This is especially suitable because in Romans chapter 5, verse 4, it says that endurance produces character. So there's a connection here. Steadfastness in enduring what is right results in a character that is conformed to the image of God. And that is godliness. Godliness is when our character is molded into the image of God. Think about what endurance produces. Endurance the believer in enduring gains experimental knowledge of the loving kindness of their heavenly father. The believer learns that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that he makes me lie down in green pastures, that he restores my soul, that he is ever present to me, that he meets my needs, that he is encouraging me and strengthening me and building me up. And we come to rely on him more. And we we grow in a childlike dependence on the Lord and we grow in the reverential love and it is in this soil that true godliness grows. So I am greatly encouraged that God has the ability to do great things through this church if we will trust in him and if we will endure rejoicing because Christ has uh, given us great and precious promises and all the magnitudes of his graces and mercies. May this be an encouragement to you. And then lastly, uh, not lastly, but next, godliness with brotherly affection. Do you know what happens when we draw near to our heavenly father? Increasingly, we begin to see that there are other people drawing near to our heavenly father. Oh, look at that. And they are, they are like us. They're children of God. And there's this growth of affection, this growth of love, tenderness, warmth, care, mutual love, mutual sacrifice, enduring together and pulling together. And, and this is the fruit of enduring. It's the fruit of godliness. It's the fruit that is produced in the people of God as they endure steadfastly in seeking after the Lord. This is brotherly affection. And, and I think that this is a church that is marked by uh, uncommon amount of affection. Praise God. And yet, what happens when we are close? You know, we endure together and we pull together and we stand firm during trials together and we love together and we pray together and we fellowship together and we eat together and we clean together. And that's a lot of together. I don't know about you, but sometimes this togetherness leads not always to brotherly affection, but to uh, sometimes brotherly irritation. So easily offended by one another's words and deeds. So naturally take up offense. So naturally uh, recoil, withdraw ourselves, withdraw love, withdraw warmth. We are together, but we're not together in heart. God wants us to grow in affection for one another, to recognize each other as the fellow children of God, to cultivate tenderness and warmth and soft-heartedness and mutual sacrifice, to make a commitment to love and serve my brothers because, because, because of the affection that I have for them, that it is the love of God abounding in my life that overflows to love for them and bearing with them and, and, and growing in affection for them. And and moreover, it is Christ, my elder brother, who has loved me and shown me great kindness and grace. So I will respond to my brothers and sisters with love as well. And this brings us to the last comment where Peter says, that Brotherly affection, add love. And this is the supreme virtue. To love God and to love our neighbor fulfills all the commandments. God has so shed his love within our hearts that the Christian can be characterized by love. I'm not going to say anything more about that because our brother Andrew is going to be preaching the next three sermons on how Christ uh, fulfills the law of love and enables us to, uh, to love. So let's now go into the third part. And I'm going to try to do this as quick as I can. And the third part is, why should the Christian grow in grace? We talked about what are the graces we've received? How do we grow in them? All the list of Christian character. And now we're going to look at why. And and to and to address why, Paul gives us two warnings. What happens if we fail to grow in grace? And two promises of the blessings that accompany growth in grace. Let's look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the way that it's written, it's, it says that if we do this, we will be kept from being ineffective, unfruitful, but the opposite is true. And I think that's what Peter has more in mind, that if we fail to grow, the warning is that we will become ineffective and that we will become unfruitful. So Peter's warning is that if you don't grow in grace, if we become stagnant, we can we fail to, to, to think about and meditate on the grace of God, that we fail to spur ourselves on and, and one another on, to love and to good deeds, it's not like we can just uh, be in neutral, right? The Christian car has only one gear, forward, and if you're not in forward, you're in backward, in reverse. So growth in grace is is really crucial to avoid being ineffective or uh, unfruitful in the in the in the life of a Christian. And then an, another important note: it talks about growing in character as the antidote to ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness. Isn't that an encouragement? Because it's not about what ministry you have. It's not about what position you have, or what title you have, or what rank you have, or any other thing. But it's about your character that determines your effectiveness and your fruitfulness in God. It's growth in character that makes you fruitful. So may God help us to be ones who grow in character, who grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus, that our character may become conformed to Christ. And then the second warning in verse nine, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This is another serious warning. Failure to grow in grace, uh, Peter says, leads to spiritual blindness and forgetfulness. We become nearsighted. And not some of you. uh, I I have uh, nearsightedness. I can see things up front, up front, fine. Far away, it's fuzzy. So, what happens if you fail to grow in the grace of Jesus? Things that are right in your view, that are right there to see, you can't see. You can't see your own sin. You can't see the glories of God that he has provided for us in Christ Jesus. You can't see the divine power that God has given us for all things in life and godliness. You can't see the glory of the cross, the glory of the gospel. You become callous to the promises of scripture. Those are blessings that are right there. But you cannot see them because you're now nearsighted. And so the the warning here is that a person may be truly saved, but they... Even it says they forget that he was cleansed from his former sins. If we don't make progress as Christians, the warning is: you may forget that you have even been saved. You may lose the assurance that God has saved you. You may lose uh, the the knowledge that God has saved you from your sins. And so, this is a loss of assurance, and it's a great warning. But also we have not only a warning, but we have an encouragement to spur us on. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This is the, the promise of assurance. Just as there was a warning of losing your assurance if you fail to grow in grace, there's a promise of having assurance if you do grow in grace. God's people are elect before the foundation of the world. God doesn't need to confirm and, and, oh, I forgot who's saved. He doesn't have to do that. It is for us. And so to be diligent to confirm our calling and election means that we can know that we know and believe that we believe that we have been secured. Our salvation has been secured in Christ. This salvation is a fixed reality. Assurance can fluctuate, but as we grow in the knowledge of the grace of Christ and as we look upon Christ and behold the grace of Christ, then the, the blessing is the assurance that Christ's merits have indeed been applied to my own life, that I can walk in the knowledge that Christ has saved me. And this is a great blessing for the believer. And then finally, verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is Peter's final encouragement. He wants to encourage these Christians who are beleaguered and, and suffering to continue in grace, to continue to grow in grace, to be steadfast, to pursue growth of Christian character but by beholding all that God has provided for them. And and then the blessing that they will receive is not just a rich assurance and the enjoyment of assurance in this life, but also a rich and full heavenly reward in heaven. My precious brothers and sisters, this is and has been a trying season. We are battered and bruised, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. We are tempted to give in to self, and we're tempted to withdraw into ourselves, to pick up offense, to hold on to bitterness, to grow in unforgiveness. We are weary in the battle, I, I think. But Peter's encouragement to this church, to each heart, each one who is saved by faith, remember the multitude of blessings. That God has provided to us by his grace through Christ and in the gospel. His divine power has granted you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called you by His uh, to his glory and excellence. And he has provided to us these excellent and very great promises. So let us, by his strength, press on into growth in grace. We have the what? and we have the how, and we have the why. So let us heed the warnings and grab hold of the promises, for in this way there will be richly provided for you, dear brother and sister, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God help us to grow in grace, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us so much. And Lord, it's hard to take it all in. And yet I ask, O oh Lord, that you may allow for one truth to remain with your people. Thank you, O oh Lord, for the multiplication of grace that we have in you and in Christ and in the gospel. Help us, O oh Lord, to grow in the grace of God. May our knowledge of Christ not be stagnant. Lord, may it not be ineffective or unfruitful, but help us to grow in in the love of Christ. Help us, Lord, to magnify Christ through the way in which we become more and more like him. Lord, help us to make every effort to add to our faith all of these things, Lord, virtue and knowledge and self-control and brotherly affection and steadfastness and love. Help us to to heed the warnings, and also to grab hold of the promises. Lord, we, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this church, Lord, the precious children of God, uphold them by your grace. Encourage them in the promises that you have given to them. Help them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may stand firm to the very day of eternity, and that you may use us, Lord, for the proclamation of your kingdom. And Lord, that people may see that this is a people bought by God, in whom the very God lives and dwells and is manifest through their lives together. May you do this, O Lord, by the power of Christ, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.